It's exciting for me to be up here today on Super Bowl Sunday. Yes. Actually, not really. Also, Groundhog Day, in case anybody's paying attention to that. <clears throat> this morning marks the third in a series of occasional sermons on Paul's letter to the Romans. There have been two others back in November. Um, I preached uh, from Romans 1, verses 1 to 17. And Pastor Peter followed up the next week by taking us through the end of Romans 1 and the first part of Romans 2. Today we'll pick up where we left off. And for those who might be anticipating more sermons on the book of Romans, uh, Peter will preach the next section, I think the first Sunday of March, followed up by Pastor Rolando and Theodore. So we can look forward to those. Today, I have bad news for all of you. I have to tell you that no, no matter how bad your life may be going now, it's actually worse than you think. You are in desperate straits. And today you will hear a warning from me, from Paul, and from Jesus that being religious, going to church, having a knowledge of what is in the Bible, having a Christian heritage coming from a Christian country, and having participated faithfully in religious rituals will count for nothing when you stand before the judgment seat of God. My goal for today is to place you there before the righteous judge in the spotlight, in your moment, before God. The reality is this, you are appointed once to die, and after that, the judgment. And I also want to help you see yourself as parallel to the first century Jew, the one whom Paul is talking about in our passage today. And beyond that, to hopefully make you see that you are no different than the scribes and Pharisees who opposed Jesus and who would have him crucified. Brothers and sisters, God has placed us, has placed you in a box. It is as if on the day you were born, you climbed into your own coffin, your own casket, and your whole life has been lived in that coffin. You may have dressed it up. You might have had quite a wonderful life in your prison. But it doesn't matter. The clock is ticking. The lid of that coffin is closing. Your death is approaching. And there is only one who can free you from this body of death. And you can't do it. No matter how much you sacrifice, no matter how hard you try, being good, being nice won't cut it. 
But we know that thousands and millions of churchgoers are sitting in churches thinking that it will. Having gained a slight dose of religion, a vague sense of Christianity, being urged by pastors to try harder to be good and to trust in the religious rituals of the church. It's like a flu shot that gives you a little bit of the flu but inoculates you against the real thing. They have become immune to the gospel of Christ. Only Christ, our Redeemer, who gave his life for us all, only Christ and his righteousness can free us. And what Paul is trying to convey to the Romans in these first few chapters of this amazing letter is that everyone, Jew and Gentile, is guilty of sin before God. Everyone is equally guilty and under the wrath of God. And no one escapes judgment. And there is only one solution, one hope, and that is the foreign righteousness that comes to us through Christ by being in Christ. So Paul is able to proclaim to the Roman Christians that he is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, because it is in the gospel of God that the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Hopefully, as we look at our passage today, which we will, we will see even more clearly the righteousness of God at work. God will be true to himself, <clears throat> though every man be proved a liar. He is holy, and no one who is unholy will see him. But God has provided a way through Christ's physical body, through death on the cross. He is able to present us, you and me, holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. He is able to preserve his holiness and allow us to dwell with him and share in that holiness. We preach that we are saved not by works, but through faith. But to be accurate, it is through works that we are saved. Only it is not our works. It is totally the work of God through Jesus Christ, his perfect life, his death, his resurrection. Paul, in these first few chapters of Romans, takes a careful look at two groups, Gentiles and Jews. He's writing to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. He's writing to Gentile Christians who had come from a totally pagan background. And he's writing to religious people, the, the Jews who possess the sacred scripture, who have the promise, who have the circumcision. 
Those whom Paul describes as being far away and those who are near. In Romans 1, we see that Paul critiques the pagan Gentile culture and society. But now as we move further along in chapter 2, he takes dead aim at the Jews. What we will read today is of great importance as Paul sets forth the question of what value is there in being a religious person, in having a religious heritage. What advantage is there in possessing the law, having the Old Testament writings, and what advantage is there in having the right of circumcision? Does this make you superior to others? And can it save you? We have this situation in many churches today. Good people, faithful people, sitting comfortably in their seats, thinking they are saved probably baptized as infants, holding on to their religious heritage, encouraged by their pastors to do good, to give more, preaching that we are all God's children, preaching a vague form of Christianity, giving them that sliced dose of religion that has inoculated them from the saving power of Jesus. And so before we read this passage today, <coughs> I want to remind you that Romans is not the easiest material in the Bible to comprehend. It might be hard to understand, it is for me, but in some ways it's even more difficult to digest when we do understand it. Paul has set up for us here a confrontation between himself and an imaginary Jew. And Paul is the one both asking and answering the questions. Some have suggested that this may not have been an imaginary Jew. That what Paul is doing here is actually rehashing some of the very real arguments he might have had with members of local synagogues actual arguments and discussions. You might remember that when Paul entered a new town or city that it was his practice to go to the local synagogue as did Jesus and teach and engage in debate with the Jewish leaders. What we might be getting here today in our text is perhaps a glimpse into Paul's method of engaging others in gospel conversation and gospel confrontation. Considering this section of Romans 2 and 3, Martin Lloyd-Jones points out that you get much more out of Paul's reasoning here by reading it out loud rather than silently. It carries a bit more force and power to hear Paul's argument proclaimed and declared. So I will try to give this reading dramatic justice. Again, I remind you Romans is not for the faint-hearted. So I urge you to listen attentively to what God is saying to us through the Apostle Paul. So open your Bibles to Romans 2. We're going to start at verse 17. And we're going to go over to chapter 3, ending at verse 8. And uh, of course, the, it's printed in your bulletin.
Romans 2, verse 17. <clears throat> but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed by the law and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who have say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Continuing on to chapter 3. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie... God's truth abounds to his glory. Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Bad news for us today. I hope you see what I meant when I suggested that this passage is difficult to grasp. And notice that it reads more like a verbal debate rather than Paul's usual writing style. It's obviously obvious that Jews are his target audience. This letter is to Christians in Rome, so we know that he is addressing believers in Christ. 
those who are Gentiles and those who are of Jewish heritage, those who possess the Bible and those who are without the Bible. In fact, the first part of this letter, Paul is charging and indicting all people. In chapter 1, he targets Gentile society. In chapter 2, as if to say, you religious folks, you Jews, I haven't forgotten about you. You are under the same judgment. In fact, you are all in the same boat. And we would say today, I would say to you that you are under God's judgment as well. Again, I say you are worse off than you think you are. I would imagine a first century Jew would have reacted to chapter 1 of Romans and would, and with agreement. They would have agreed with Paul's assessment of Greek and Gentile society. But as the letter got around to chapter 2, he would have had a much different reaction. The Jew might actually have started to squirm. He might not like what he is hearing. Make no mistake, Jesus will judge us all. Those of us who lay claim to some sort of religious background and those of us who are completely ignorant of religion and a religious upbringing, we all fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, no, not one. And we will all sit before Jesus Christ. I should say stand before Jesus Christ, the righteous judge. Most scholars have dated the letter of Romans, the book of Romans, to around 57 or 58 AD, written while Paul was in Corinth. By this time, Paul had been in ministry for over 20 years. And the big controversy of the early church had been the question of what to do with these Gentile believers. Many of the Jewish Christians felt that the Gentiles needed to be circumcised and needed to pay strict attention to Mosaic law in order to be fully accepted into the body of Christ. There were names for them. The circumcision party, the party of the Pharisees, I call that some party, and the Judaizers. Since there will be a lot of denouncing of first century Jews today. We should remind ourselves that our Lord and Savior came to earth as a Jewish man. And his disciples and first followers, all Jewish. There is no way to overstate this, but that we owe a great debt of gratitude to the faithful witness of first century Jews in the early church. But it was full of controversy. This controversy had seemingly been dealt with and taken care of years before. You may remember in Acts chapter 10 and 11, the story of Peter going to the household of Cornelius, a Gentile, and how his entire household had come to believe and that the Holy Spirit had fallen on them just as the Spirit had fallen on the Jewish believers at Pentecost. 
And then Peter and those with him go back to Jerusalem and were confronted by the circumcision party. And the accusation was made, how dare you go to the house of Gentiles and eat with them? And then Peter explains to them all that had happened in the house of Cornelius, that they too had received the same spirit as at Pentecost. And Peter said, who was I to stand in God's way? And those who had spoken out against Peter fell silent. And finally, they could do nothing but praise God, having concluded that God had led even the Gentiles to a repentance that leads to eternal life. And then later in Acts 15, the issue comes up again with Paul when some men come down from Judea who were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. The scripture says that Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. So it was that Paul and Barnabas and others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders and bring this question before them, the so-called Jerusalem council. And they were received warmly as they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers, believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, rose up and insisted again, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And so again, they conferred together and after much debate, Peter again told of how God had made no distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles, between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. So now, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on their necks that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? For we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. At that, the assembly fell silent, and they listened then to Paul and Barnabas as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them. <clears throat> what God had done through them among the Gentiles. Finally, James, the earthly brother of Jesus, stood up. Brothers, listen to me. And James does a very wise thing here. He went back to the Old Testament and quoted the prophet Amos. After this, I, God, will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. That the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things. And then James declares that the brothers should not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. And the letter was sent out to the Gentile believers that it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to the brothers, this Jerusalem council, that they would not place a burden on the Gentiles with anything beyond telling them to abstain, abstain from sexual immorality and from food offered to idols. 
goes without saying that the Gentile believers were greatly encouraged. But this was a tough hurdle for the Jews to overcome. I don't think we can underestimate how much this rocked their world. They struggled to overcome their prejudice against Gentiles and the realization that God was saving them too. So here we are years later as Paul writes this letter to the Romans and this Jewish problem with the Gentiles still hasn't gone away. Jewish Christians were still trying to put the new wine of the gospel into old wineskins and they were bursting. You Jew, you think because you have the law and the sign of circumcision that you will be saved. That you are better than the Gentiles. <clears throat> that you possess a greater salvation because you have the letter and the physical sign of circumcision. <clears throat> As an aside, I've often wondered if circumcision was what saved you, where did that leave women? Are they also excluded along with the Gentiles? You who proudly call yourself a Jew, you who rely on the law and boast in God, who claim to know his will and approve of what is superior because you have been instructed in the law, you who are convinced that you are a guide to the blind, a teacher of little children, of babes, you who teach others, why do you not teach yourselves? There's no question here that Paul's accusation of the religious Jews is dripping with sarcasm and harshness. And you might wonder, what right has he to speak to them in such a rude and offensive way? Perhaps it is this, that Paul knows what goes on in the mind and heart of a zealous Jew. He knows how they think and how they view the world. Because he is one of them. This imaginary Jewish opponent, this imaginary Jew that Paul is warning, you are wrong in your thinking, you are arrogant, you are a hypocrite. Paul knows he is one of them. In fact, could it be the Jew that Paul is confronting in these verses is indeed himself. Yes, you Jews are hypocrites, and so am I. And I am much worse. Look what I did. I was a murderer. Yes, Paul has the right to criticize Jewish thinking and attitudes. He, he knows where they are coming from. Paul is one of them. He knows what he is talking about. He shares their background. And yet, he does not spare them. You who have the law... Why don't you obey it? Why don't you follow it? And if Paul is getting, setting a harsh tone in his attack here, he can cite an exemplary model, his Lord and Savior. Jesus did not mince words with the scribes and the Pharisees. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 23 as he instructs his disciples. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe what they tell you, but do not do the works that they do. 
for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, <clears throat> but they themselves are not willing to move them with so much as a finger. They do all the deeds to be seen by others. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues, being greeted in the marketplace and being called rabbi. But you, he tells his followers, you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers and sisters, and call no man father on earth, for you have one father in heaven. And don't even be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And then Jesus <clears throat> launches into his most vitriolic attack on the religious leaders in the form of a curse. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And in words reminiscent of Paul in our passage today, woe to you blind guides, you blind fools. Seven times Jesus invokes the curse, woe to you. Straining out a gnat, but swallowing a camel. Tithing all your mint and spice, but neglecting justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Inside, you are full of greed and self-indulgence, appearing outwardly righteous, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This is Jesus talking. Unless we forget our Lord and Savior is the quintessential Jew. He knows even more than Paul what is in the mind and heart of a Jew. It's as if Paul, uh, Jesus is verbally overturning the tables of the money changers with these strong words, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? I might as well finish this section because these rebukes and harsh warnings were meant to lead the Jewish leaders to repentance. Just as Paul is trying to persuade and warn his fellow Jews in his letter. And here's how Matthew 23 ends. Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you would not have it. You were not willing. You sought the praise of men rather than the praise of God. And so look and see. Your house is left to you desolate. And we might ask ourselves this morning, on the day of judgment, where will our house be left to us desolate? And we do know from history, from an event that is probably not emphasized enough, that there had already been a judgment. There has already been a judgment. 40 years after Christ's ascension in 70 AD, the temple 
in Jerusalem was torn down and the whole city was destroyed and the Jews had to run for their lives and flee their beloved city never to return until actually quite recently 1948 I believe the righteous judge the one who will judge us is the one who also warns and we're talking about an eternal judgment for I tell you you will not see me again until you say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord Yes, here in these verses of Romans, Paul takes a page out of his master's playbook in hopes that he will win his audience and persuade them to repent and humble themselves before God, the righteous judge. You tell your followers, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't rob temples, but aren't you the ones who do those very things? You have the Word of God, the, the Old Testament, the, the law of Moses, but you do not obey it. In fact, non-believers look at you and see your lifestyle and your attitudes and condemn your God because of what they see in you. I'm suddenly reminded of John's sermon last week. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. This should strike an alarm for all of us. What is our excuse? In our times, we have unprecedented access to the Bible, available in almost every format, on every device. <clears throat> we can read it in 30 different versions. We have access to Greek, Hebrew, Latin, English, Spanish, and French, along with a myriad of commentaries, sermons, and books. And yet, described by many church leaders, that we are living in a time of unprecedented biblical illiteracy. We are not reading God's word, let alone obeying it. So Paul might ask us, what good is having God's word if you don't treasure it enough to read it carefully and to study it? And what value is there in knowing God's word if you don't obey it? If you don't live by it, if you don't allow it to guide your thinking and lead you to repentance? No value whatsoever. Tim Keller tells the story that as a young pastor, when he visited the homes of his congregation for the first time, he would present them with a Bible. He would also ask them to show him their old Bible. And he said it was always amusing to see many of them scrambling around trying to find it. He often wondered why they bothered to put their children's names in the Bible since apparently they never opened it. And yet, we are right there with Paul as he accuses the Jews of breaking the very laws they claim will save them. That's right, Paul, lay it on them. But let's open our eyes. Open your own eyes to your own sin. 
We all have to admit that we have broken God's law. Just like the first century Jew, we would say the Bible is very important to us. And we, like the first century Jews, we are all hypocrites. And it is not just the pagans, it's not just the phony religious people, it is us. We have all come up far short. We are all part of a humanity whose righteousness is as filthy rags. And that's not hyperbole. Filthy rags, that's reality. The Jews could compare themselves to the Gentiles and think they came out looking pretty good. But it will do you no good to try to compare yourself to those who you think are worse than you. Comparing your filthy rags to the adulterer or to the thief or to the one who robs temples or even to the murderer. In God's eyes, you are just as filthy. And it's only the blood of Christ that can wash you clean. Christ, the righteous judge, will hold us all to account. We will come before him. Appointed ones to die and after that the judgment. We know. Go all the way back to what Moses wrote in Psalm 90. We are like the new grass of the morning. Though in the morning it springs up new, by evening it is dry and withered. And we are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You, O oh God, have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath and we finish our years with a moan. Standing before a holy God, it will do you no good to plead your case. Perhaps one might try to play the comparison game. Lord, I, I wasn't as bad as some people. Certainly not as bad as Hitler. Or you can choose any other despicable and evil character from history to compare yourself with. I'm not as bad as them. But you can't make a case. And, and you can't plead ignorance. I, I didn't know. Paul makes that abundantly clear in Romans 1. What can be known of God is evident to all by what has been created and also by your own conscience. No, there is no excuse. God's standard of holiness is perfection and apart from being in Christ, clothed with Christ, hidden in him, you are doomed to perish. And God won't even have to go so far as to judge you according to his perfect standard of holiness. He can merely judge you by your own standard, by your own words, how you have judged and condemned others. You hypocrite. Apart from Christ, we will stand before God naked and without excuse. So... See to it. As the writer of Hebrews warns us, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven? 
You know, it, it is good spiritual discipline to take time out each day and consider God's mercy and love and to just thank him and praise him for saving you. You have heard the phrase from this pulpit often enough that we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. And part of that is rehearsing what God has done for you. I have a few pet scripture passages that I often recite out loud or silently to help draw me closer into the presence of God, to direct my mind and heart toward God. Psalm 103 is one of them. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is in me. Bless his holy name. And Psalm 16, keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. Colossians 3, since then you have been raised with Christ. And Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Just offering back to God his word and his promises. This is a good habit for all of us. We should all do this. But today may I suggest a new twist, a new angle, perhaps in how we think about God's mercy and grace as we direct our thoughts and prayers to him. Think of it this way, and, and Job might be our model here. Try this in, in talking to God, in, in your meditation, in your prayer. Tell him. Don't ask him. Tell him. Explain to him, the sovereign God, all the reasons why you should let him, let you stick around. Why he needs you. Tell him about your significance, your important place in the ministry of his people. Go ahead, explain to him why he should not destroy you right this very minute. Why he should not put an end to your feeble, self-centered, self-indulgent, self-glorifying existence. And when you are left without a single word to offer up to him in your defense... And if we are honest, there will be none. You will be left speechless, unable to answer. Perhaps it may cause you to weep. I hope it does. Or drive you to your knees or cause you to throw up your hands in desperation. Like the tax collector whom Jesus commended who standing far off would not even raise his eyes to heaven but beat his breast and cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's the reality. Worse off than you think you are and more loved by God than you can ever imagine. Oh, how he loves you and me. He gave his life. What more can he give? Oh, how he loves you and me. Paul will later write, if you are in Christ, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Whose righteousness? The righteousness of Christ. Make no mistake, we are saved by works. And I don't mean to shock you. Yes, we are saved by works, but not our own. 
We are saved by the work of Christ, what he has done, totally and sufficiently. I like this contemporary song, I need you, oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you, my one defense, my righteousness. My one defense, your righteousness, oh Lord, how I need you. In just a few minutes, we will be celebrating baptisms. Merta, Tamara, and Tito will participate in a religious ritual. They know it won't save them. God has already marked them for that with his Holy Spirit. But what they will do is simply demonstrate an outward sign of an inward conviction. The conviction that they belong to Christ. That they are in Christ. And they want the whole world to know. And we get to witness this. It is the same with the Lord's table. We are not Christians who are Christians outwardly. Coming up to the bread, coming up to take the bread and the wine, that, that doesn't save you. What you declare on the inside is what counts, that your heart is no longer your own, that you belong to Christ, body and soul, both in life and in death. And that's Paul's message. It is true whether you receive it or not. God is true. He is faithful. Though every man be a liar, though every man be unfaithful, hopefully we recognize the desperate condition we are in. And I hope you are desperate for Jesus Christ. Paul will go on to write, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, sovereign God, Help us to see you more clearly as the righteous ruler and judge of all heaven and earth, of all that exists, seen and unseen. Cause us to think often of our desperate standing before you. But now, in Christ, not under condemnation, but free from guilt, and wrapped in your loving arms. May this thought direct and guide us, and may it cause us to seek your praise and not the praise of men. In the precious name of Christ, amen.